Hello, Shehab. How are you? Hi, Heather. I'm great. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Oh, it's a and pleasure. It's a pleasure. I... Yesterday. <laughs> well, you know, you know, it's the start of uh, the Ramadan period, and you know, we're both fasting, and we're recording this while we are both fasting. So, you know, hopefully, um, we won't fall off and. Uh, fall asleep while we're talking um but i mean you know uh, you're a hand surgeon and mm-hmm. you know how do you do it you know doing hand surgery and and fasting at the same time and you know for 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 some of the listeners out there you know um you know fasting during the month of ramadan means no food no no water um no sex of course but hey you know how how are we going to have sex during surgery but anyway um you know all that stuff you know how do you stay you know, concentrating while while you're doing this sort of delicate hand surgery? Well, uh, good question. And what questions to start with? Yeah. Well, I, I started fasting uh, at quite a young age. Um, I think as surgeons, actually, we don't eat very often, um, especially being a hand surgeon, plastic surgeon. We're quite used to the operating environment, standing there and doing an operation for eight, nine, ten hours sometimes, and um, sometimes not even actually taking a break in that period of time. So I think it's quite a natural thing for surgeons, actually, in a way. might sound strange, but yes, especially when you're operating in theatre, high stakes, you tend to kind of zone out of the food um, aspect of life and you tend to focus on the adrenaline rush uh, and you know keep yourself going um, I started passing it as I said quite a young age and I I got quite used to it um, in fact I feel that fasting and working actually go hand in hand because I normally find that if I have lunch in the middle of the day, uh, I tend to get sleepy after lunch and fasting actually for me helps me to maintain concentration actually throughout the day um, and I think I don't know what the latest evidence is for intermittent fasting but there's quite a lot of work that shows that actually intermittent fasting um, especially kind of the way the Ramadan fast is uh, helps you to increase concentration maybe the lack of water is slightly different <laughs> And it is an added challenge, but you know, I, I feel that it, my concentration actually improves during this month. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I find at the start of the month, you know, particularly the first few days, can be a bit difficult. Given that, I mean, I have a horrible um, diet regime. You know, it's like whatever tastes salty and sweet. Have as much uh, as possible of it, <laughs> you know. And you sort of so it, it takes a few days for the body to kind of wean wean itself off the addiction of of sugar and salt. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, water is or you know, um, fluid balance is is a big issue, I think. And you know, something about brains need fluid apparently because it swims in. And, and lots of CSF and sort of what have you. So I guess that's the issue. But, um, you know, I mean, you get lots of these funny people that talk about 
you know you need to drink fluid all the time you know and all that kind of stuff and as if the body's not intelligent enough to sort of maintain some kind of fluid balance yeah i mean i suppose that's the whole uh point of homeostasis mm. mistaken i'm trying to remember my <laughs> lessons but that's homeostasis isn't it trying to maintain all kinds of uh, trying to maintain balance overall whether it be fluid whether it be your temperature um yeah. etc to regulate things um yeah i i think one of the challenges though with fasting um for me personally and probably for people in our profession is the fact that actually despite you fasting we actually are recommended to have at least two meals right so we break fast and uh, we have our meal and then at least you're supposed to have a meal um during the middle of the night okay so we're supposed to try and have two meals and this is quite quite normal right for the intermittent fasting regime as well because the intermittent fasting the uh the different regimes that are recommend you re- you recommended to have at least two meals if not three so i think the problem is that trying to wake up for that early morning meal is quite challenging uh, i think if we were able to do that a bit more if i was for, for me personally i think if i was able to wake up in the morning and have that meal i think it would make fasting a lot easier it's just trying to wake up is quite difficult yeah. i don't know what your thoughts are on that yeah i mean i think it's really important and i think it's um you know it's a habit and if you're not used to the habit it's 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 difficult to to do it unless it's you know you force yourself into it um you know i mean the excuse is is that you know one of the prayers is sort of you know before the sun rises so the fajr prayer so maybe that's a reason why we need to sort of do that thing first thing in the morning uh you know to get us used to praying five times a day and you know being part of the uh you know the whole islamic uh, um family and umma um but yeah i mean uh intermittent fasting has 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 become quite a um yeah yeah quite a a movement isn't it sort of it's become quite sexy amongst a lot of people yeah i think you know intermittent fasting is great actually i mean it's it's another excuse um to make sure that you know you don't you try to control your diet and watch your weight and um i don't know if you've heard of dr fung he's he's a he's a um, renal physician um from the states and he's quite um influential in this movement of fasting and you know Uh, isn't he diet. isn't he isn't he anti carbs kind of person yes, he's, he's he's an anti well he's not anti carbs per se but yes he does say yeah. reduce your carbs and yeah. uh, eating i love the way he says um well if you can't find time to eat then reduce what you're eating if you can't find the money to eat then reduce what you're eating so basically any reason that you can find to reduce the amount of calories you're consuming in terms of carbs he says use it and um use it to reduce your carb intake as you know he has 
really good um, points with regards to intermittent fasting, why it's great. And um, I actually, you know, actually started intermittent fasting because I listened to quite a few of his lectures and I found it quite eye-opening. Um, and I don't, you know, the diabetes, the, the whole treating diabetes with diet um, and how you can reverse type 2 diabetes um, by getting yourself to lose weight through fasting and increasing your body's uh, capability to uh, react to insulin because that's the problem with diabetes, right? Type 2 diabetes, it's it's your body's inability to respond to the circulating levels of insulin. And, you know, that is thought to be due to the um, high levels of uh, yeah, adipose tissue that's built up. Um, so it's, it's quite interesting. Um, I found the whole thing quite interesting. I, I think there is quite a bit of evidence now building up in this regard um, to us do like uh, intermittent fasting, losing weight in that manner, and then, you know, overcoming type 2 diabetes as a result. Um, yeah, it's quite, it's quite inspirational. It's quite... Um, it's quite the in thing to do now, intermittent fasting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, when I see patients with uh, um, macular edema and retinal edema and they're diabetic, you know, I do spend a lot of time talking about diet and, you know, particularly carbohydrates um, and also weight loss because, you know, I'm of the opinion that all that fat tissue is pro-inflammatory. And, you know, I mean, for me... I don't know about sort of, you know, hand um, pathology, you know, but most of it is actually inflammatory rather than any other, you know, kind of major process. Um, Okay, there's a lot of this thing about, um, you know, uh, increase in angiotensin and um, increase in uh, VEGF and sort of things like that in terms of the retina. But I think the underlying issues is is inflammation. and you know maybe adipose tissue is the thing that that drives that inflammation but hey um i've noticed that you know when i lose weight um my joints are much better um <laughs> whether that's a weight thing or an inflammatory thing uh, you know i've i've never gone down the uh you know taking bloods every every week like uh you know peter atia you know he's you know he's quite uh he does a lot of blood work on himself and, and, and his clients. Maybe that's something to think about for myself. Yeah. I suppose it could be a combination of both and take some of the pressure off uh, your joints. Um, and um, yeah, and you know, maybe that's also going to help with reducing inflammation. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, to, to, to be honest with you, when I don't eat, you know, uh, any kind of, you know, heavy meal, I find that my focus is is pretty much on the job, <laughs> you know, rather than anything else. And, you know, thinking about uh, food and what the next meal is. And then if it's not a great meal, I do spend five or 10 minutes sort of complaining in my head, oh, it's another of these sandwiches or another of these I'm I'm not complaining because the wife does a great job and she, you know, gives me some great food, but it's that extra. Is she, is she behind you? Well, mate, <laughs> mate, if she was behind me, none of this would would happen. You know, it's. Uh... 
you know, I come into the office, I lock the door, I've, I've got a lock on my door. So whatever happens, but you know, I mean, obviously she listens to some of the episodes and, and then I'm in big trouble, but Hey, what can I do? The man's got to say what, what he's got to say. Absolutely. I think that's what you, that's what you started this for, right? <laughs> well, out behind closed doors. <laughs> well, I mean, I got in some really serious trouble and I was um, being interviewed by, you know, you know, quite a inflammatory doctor. And um, let's just say he was, he, just, was he heavy on the tissue side. <laughs> well, he, you know, he got the juice out of me, you know, he got all the juicy bits out of me. And oh, my God, you know, I was in big trouble uh, with the wife and. So I've um, definitely, you know, turned down the uh, the wife rhetoric uh, since then, because uh, I, you know, do want to have a um, a psychologically stable marriage. So yeah, you know. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah. yeah. So so what 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 you know why why hand surgery? I mean, because you know, for me, when I think of hands, I think, oh my god, all those you know, delicate tissues. I mean, you guys use, use microscopes like, like we do. Um, but it's like both, you know, but it's like both macro and micro. Yeah. I, okay. So I, I'll be honest and say I initially thought of wanting to become an orthopedic surgeon. Um, I was quite interested in bones and I still, I'm, I am still interested in bones. Um, however, uh, I did do some rotations in orthopedics when I was an FY2. So that's a foundation year two doctor. So junior minion, basically. Um, and I found it very physically demanding. Um, and I felt that it was so physically demanding that it was something that probably wasn't very suited to me because I had back problems and um, I couldn't see myself holding a tibial fracture in reduction for two hours while they put a nail through the tibia. It was just not something I could do. And at the same time, I spent a bit of time with a hand surgeon um, at St. George's. Um, so the hand unit in St. George's is the place where I first got exposed to hands. Um, and um, that kind of opened my eyes to how much the hand is involved in day-to-day activities. So the hands are not only kind of involved in you um, doing things with it. So, you know, it's also the second most important part of your body that expresses emotion in a way. Okay. So obviously your face is smiling and grinning and you know your face your hands are the next um are the next organ that actually expresses yourself right because you use a lot of hand gestures and hand motions and so on um and so that whole aspect of um the hands actually you know your brain thinks of something but your hands is what makes those ideas and thoughts come to life right so when I saw people in a clinic, in this hand clinic, being so thankful 
following their hand operation and their hand, you know, being returned back to their ability to do something normal. I found it to be very satisfying, even though obviously I wasn't doing the operations at that point in time. I found it um, very satisfying to see patients come in and thank the surgeon um, for whatever they've done to their hand and improve the improved whatever injury or trauma or whatever condition they were suffering from. So that left a really um, indelible mark in my mind with regards to hands and how important they are and the fact that it was quite nice surgery as well. It was nice, clean surgery. You had all of these tissues to deal with because a hand has bones, soft tissue, nerves, blood vessels, tendons. Um, so quite intri- intricately structured. So all of these things meant that quite early on, I became interested in hands and I thought this is something I could see myself doing. And then from that point onwards, I had to make a decision as to whether I do orthopedics or plastics and which route do I take to hand surgery. And I felt the plastic surgery route was probably more scenic um, because of all the soft tissue involved. Um, the fact that you get to see a lot, you know, a whole spectrum of other things and plastic surgery is actually quite a large uh, specialty, you know, anything that somebody, anything in any other surgical specialty that people didn't want to do, it would end up with a plastic surgeon, you know. So, so yeah, so this, this is kind of the reason why I thought I'll do hands and I would go down the plastic surgery route to hands rather than the orthopedic route. But I tried very hard during my training uh, to try and not see hand surgery as either plastic or orthopedic, but to combine the two um, and just approach hands as its own specialty and learn from both orthopedic and plastic surgeons. So yeah. What was the sort of the most common kind of hand surgery at the time when when you started um, your training uh, back in St. George's? So obviously hand surgery, you can divide it into your trauma workload and elective hand surgery. Mm. Okay. So trauma could be anything, you know, there's a whole, whole gamut of work there. And you could just be a specialist in hand trauma and you'll have enough work um, to, you know, fill five days a week. Um, so that trauma involves things like fractures, tendon injuries, nerve injuries, um, simple nail bed injuries, um, all the way up to the most complicated aspects of hand surgery where people cannot come with their thumbs amputated and you'll be connecting them back. So we call that a replant. Um, and sometimes even multiple fingers or even the whole hand being um, amputated as a result, you having to connect it up together. And these are long operations, could last anything from um, three to four hours to, you know, the longest one that I've been involved in, which is around 19 hours. Um, so, so you can, it's a whole spectrum of complexity. And then you have your elective, so the non-urgent hand surgery um, presentation. So the common things like carpal tunnel syndrome, trigger finger, tubitrans disease, Um, and bands of tumors and so on, as well as um, if you go into wrist surgery, 
you have all of the other aspects of the hand, such as arthritis, osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, um, yeah, and and you know all the ligament injuries and ligament uh, instabilities. Um, so it's 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 a lot of a lot of work there. And and you know, what's your favorite hand operation? That's uh, well. I don't have a favorite per se. I enjoy all of it, um, but I would say that in terms of a subspecialty interest within hands, I am trying to develop arthroscopy as a subspecialty interest. So this is, you know, I mean, you know, it's essentially inserting a camera and then operating a probe and doing arthroscopic wrist surgery. So that's that's an area I would like to develop. So that's that's my interest and that's my subspecialist area. So wrist and arthroscopic wrist surgery. I mean, it's a small place. I mean, how how does that work? Oh yes, yeah, so it, it is a small place, but it is you know it is arthroscopes are coming into coming to the fore now over the last ten to fifteen years. There's quite a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Um, so you started off diagnostically. So diagnostic wrist arthroscopy was something that people were doing to look at the wrist and uh, in a minimally invasive way assess what's going on with the wrist. But over time, uh, people have managed to now uh, have or add an interventional component to the diagnostic aspects of arthroscopic wrist surgery. So interventional arthroscopic research is becoming um, quite advanced um, and it's 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 something that is a developing field uh, and a lot of not a lot of surgeons still do it but it is an area that is rapidly gaining momentum because of the fact that you could uh, minimally invasively treat a lot of risk pathology which is fantastic for risks because the less um, you can, less you disrupt the soft tissues above the wrist, um, the faster the uh, recovery and the less damage you'll be causing to the rest of the hand, in a way. What kind of surgery? I mean, you know, what kind of pathologies are they treating arthroscopically? So arthroscopically, um, wrist osteoarthritis is a key um, disease that they're treating arthroscopically, um, mainly for grading Get the level of arthritis in the wrist, but there are other things you can do, like for example, steroid factor fixations, um, TFCC, you know, um, debridements, um, ganglion excisions. Um, so there, you know, scapulonic ligament injuries. So various um, pathologies in the hand can that can be treated with arthroscopic wrist surgery. Of course, it's it is difficult in that you can't treat everyone arthroscopically. It has to be quite carefully chosen patients and carefully chosen pathologies. But there definitely is a role for it. And I am interested in developing that as a substitute interest for myself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you've got to pick um, a niche and, and, and sort of excel in that niche. And, um, you know, particularly if it's something that, that, that sort of speaks to you. Well, what's what's the most horrendous um, hand injury that 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 you had to get involved with um, repairing? Okay, so I think one of the most horrendous ones that I had to get involved in um, 
was a chap that um, was involved in some kind of um, uh, tussle. <laughs> I call it a tussle. Um, with a uh, you know a blade, ended up cutting his thumb uh, completely off, and this is the thumb, not not at what we call the MCP joint, but at the carpal metacarpal joint, so right at the base of the thumb, um, which makes it very very challenging to connect it back. Um, but the injury happened around one a.m. in the morning. We got into theatre around 2am and all through the night um, we worked all through the night to try and um, connect this back together but unfortunately it didn't work um, and it's it's just a reminder that yes there are wonderful things we can do today with microscopes and you know sutures that are as thin as the hair um, and various instruments microsurgical instruments and techniques but despite that, there's always um, a possibility that it may not work. Um, and so, yeah, prevention is better than cure if we can prevent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, your voice cut up. Um, I mean, I heard the knife. So how, how did the thumb come off? Was it he sort of cut himself with a knife or? No, he was, he was, um, he was, in a, essentially he was, um, Attacked by an individual. Oh, right. Yes, yes, yes. 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 Uh, with with a with a, uh, with a blade that is um, a very large blade, essentially, which is like a sword. My God, my God. You know, I mean, it brings back um, memories. Well, not 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 memories, but sort of images of of medieval um, sword fighting. You know, I'm sure there were lots of limbs coming off in those days. <laughs> Well, you, you, you can have a representation of those medieval activities uh, on a Friday or a Saturday night. <laughs> wow. wow. De depending on the uh, location you're based in. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, you know, I mean, you know, you're originally from Sri Lanka and there's a lot of issues there currently in, 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 in Sri Lanka. And, you know, so what's going on there? I mean, we don't hear much of it um, in the news. Well, well. Sri Lanka has had, I mean, look, it's had issues for as far as I can remember, yeah. okay? But um, over the last uh, 10 to 15 years, it's had more issues than, than in the past 50 or so years. And unfortunately, a lot of it is linked to corruption. Mm. Uh, um, and each of the leaders trying to outdo each other in terms of corruption. Yeah. So the current ruling family is probably the most corrupt um, rulers that the country has had uh, in all of its 70 odd years of independence. Um, and essentially the corruption coupled with very poor decision making with regards to who they take loans from, how they take loans, um, and essentially, you know, finance, uh, essentially, all those things that are essential for keeping a GDP running 
have essentially been obliterated. So for example, they took loans from China at very high interest rates, knowing that they won't be able to pay um, sovereign, sovereign loans. It's a, you know, they have massive amounts of sovereign debt, which are debts that governments take for emergency relief um, payments. So they've, you know, they've got massive sovereign debt. So every few months, one of these sovereign debts matures and they need to repay it with massive amounts of interest and they just can't afford the interest repayments. And then this it was they cut taxably that resulted in a massive uh, decrease in the amount of state revenue. So that then coupled with COVID-19, um, a reduction in tourist numbers, uh, and all of that then essentially snowballing into a massive uh, reduction in um, foreign exchange, essentially US dollars. So there are no, there, there's almost no US dollars to fund any imports. So as a result of all of this, the country is in a deep financial and economic crisis. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and um, I mean, you know, there's a big diaspora of, of Sri Lankans. Um, you know, what's their, what's their view about this? And you know, I mean, I know quite a few Sri Lankans and, you know, they, they seem very prosperous and, you know, well off here in, in the West. You know, what's their general sense of this? I mean, is it something for them to get involved in or is it like, well, it's a mess and I've got my own problems to deal with here? Well, yeah, it's, I mean, yes, most people would have that attitude, okay, that this is something external to me mm. and I don't have anything left there and there's not much I can do anyway, yeah. okay? Obviously, it depends on whether you've got an interest, you know, something something based in Sri Lanka. So if you've got property or if you've got money based in Sri Lanka, then obviously that's going to affect you a lot more than if you've got nothing, uh, no, no interests, you know, based in that particular location. So I can tell you that um, Sri Lanka, the Sri Lankan rupee, for example, has depreciated over the last two years by 50%. So around about, if I remember correctly, um, 2018, uh, June 2018, the dollar was cruising at around 150, 160 rupees. Today, the dollar is at close to 300, 298, 299. So that's massive, massive uh, depreciation in the price of the rupee. Um, and the government has tried, unfortunately, all, all the actions they've taken, unfortunately, are always a little too late. They wait for the, um, you know, they wait for a catastrophe and then make a decision. They don't preemptively make a decision to try and avert the catastrophe. They wait for the catastrophe, then try to make a decision to try and correct whatever they've done. Um, so it always plays out as negative as a result. So, for example, they artificially pegged the dollar to a certain value, and. You know, this was this was a bad move because it meant that people were just waiting for the day when they had to unpeg it and the rupee would crash. And that's what just happened like a couple of months ago. 
um, the rupee just suddenly, they, they unpicked it to try and get people to bring in their dollars. And unfortunately, uh, it's had the opposite effect. It, 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 people have run away from putting money into Sri Lanka as a result. So, yeah, the diaspora could have a part to play, and the government are trying to encourage the diaspora to come in and put their money in and try and do something for the country. Okay. But I think overall, it's a question of trust and um, would you trust the government who's been so corrupt and continues to always be on the back foot when it comes to decision making? Would you then trust them to give you a return? Would you take your money in there? I, I don't think, you know, the diaspora are going to um, invest or bring their hard earned money into a country where there is rampant Yeah, yeah. Uh, coming back to, uh, you know, the hand surgery, um, um, how, how has it changed since, since you started, you know, your sort of FY1 job and sort of now, you know, coming towards the end of, you know, all your training and, you know, about to start um, a consultant job? How has hand surgery and, and sort of hand surgery in the NHS uh, has changed? Mm-hmm. So, oh, let me just adjust this. So, so hand surgery in the NHS, um, well, there was a point in time, uh, I can't remember now, maybe a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, there was a point in time where they were going to, well, the powers that be, um, so the Department of Health, essentially was going to remove essential hand surgery operations such as Dupuytren's release, uh, trigger finger release, uh, you know, all of these basic important hand surgery operations of which we do tons and from which patients benefit a whole heap. They were going to remove all of this from the NHS. Wow. uh, Based on a misunderstanding. And and this was, I think this was during Jeremy Hunt's tenure. so I think the British Society for Surgery of the Hand has done a lot of work to try and convince the Department of Health, which they finally managed to eventually, that the decision to remove basic cancer operations from being provided on the NHS was a bad idea. Um, so there was going to be a huge change and a major uproar, but fortunately we managed to put it back from the edge. Um, but coming, you know, I suppose, coming to a question of has it changed a lot since I was in FY2? Um, it's probably not changed all that much, but I would say that there is a increasing recognition that a hand surgeon needs to be uh, an individual not aligned to plastics or orthopedics per se. So it's okay to accept that they will come through those routes, but I think there is an increasing recognition that hand surgeons are hand surgeons and they should have um, experience in both plastic and orthopedic aspects of hand surgery. And it's not, you know, accepted anymore just to say, oh, I'm a plastic hand surgeon, so I don't know anything about the risk 
or I'm an orthopedic hand surgeon, so I don't know anything about microsurgery. It's becoming less accepted and it's becoming more expected that a hand surgeon is, you know, adequately skilled in all aspects of hand surgery and not just what is considered to be orthopedics or plastics. And in, in, in terms of the actual surgical experience, has that changed over the years, you know, being exposed to different surgeries? Um, I, it's, it's a difficult question, actually. I think the exposure is obviously, as you may have, you know, um, recognized, the exposure obviously is becoming more difficult for trainees, if that's, if that's what you mean. Mm. Um, it's taking, you know, it's taking, it, it means that individuals like myself who want to become hand consultants probably need to take a year out and do a specialist fellowship in hand surgery. If you wanted to become a hand surgeon, you can't expect to get adequate hand surgery experience purely during your uh, registrar or you know residency training. You have to do an advanced fellowship nowadays. Um, so that's important. Um, and I would say that obviously the knowledge and the amount of conditions we treat is just rapidly expanding every single day. So trying to keep up is quite difficult. Uh, and that uh, one, do need, one does need to develop a, what could be described as a super specialty interest. Um, so that's why I mentioned wrist surgery to you because um, I want to obviously develop that as my super specialist interest um, within hands. So that's also becoming, you know, quite quite a common theme now for one to develop a super specialist interest in one aspect of the specialty that they're in. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of wrist, I mean, if 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 you can give us and the listeners, you know, what 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 kind of top tips do you have for sort of good wrist wrist health? given that, you know, some of us use our wrists very, 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 very much often on a regular basis. Yes. Um, well, for good wrist health, that's a, that's a, that's a difficult question, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, because I was, um, you know, because I was doing some bench press the other day and I thought to myself, oh, I need to make sure, you know, the wrist is okay and it's in the right position and, yeah, and then, no, you know, and then you come along, and I thought, well, wrist, come on, man, you know, wrist health. Yeah, well, a blog about wrist health. <laughs> about wrist health, yes. Well, the wrist is, you know, a very complex. Um, it's probably one of the most complex structures in your body, um, and it's designed in a very intricate manner. Um, and the way it's designed is such that you have force transmission through your fingers, through your carpal bones, and onto your radius and ulna, okay? So I suppose you need to understand a bit about your wrist, you know, if you are to, you know, keep, well, have good wrist health, I suppose. So that's, that's a very basic overview of what your wrist comprises and, you know, how the forces um, are transmitted through it. So you've got a number of then following those bones, you've got a number of ligaments, you've got nerves, um, and you've got cartilage and synovial fluid, all of which are important in cushioning things. 
and making sure that the risk doesn't move beyond the limits it's supposed to be moving. Okay. So I, you know, if you're if you're doing something like a bench press or or even just lifting weights, you know, free weights, it'll be quite important that you have a wrist support, I would say. Um, wearing wrist supports can significantly um, reduce the strain that is going through the joints and reduce the risk of injuring ligaments and especially something called your TFCC, um, which, you know, if they do get injured, they're quite difficult to treat. So again, prevention is better than cure. So wrist supports, I would recommend them. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's very important that um, you well, and especially if you're doing something that you're going to, uh, something, an, an action that's going to increase uh, or put significant forces to your wrist. Okay. The other thing is obviously um, avoiding significant torsional forces on your wrist. So try not to, you know, do things where you are putting your wrist in a very contorted position and then trying to push out through, you know, push out with your wrist or pull through because that, that torsional force could obviously convert itself into a wrist injury. Okay. Um, apart from that, you know, obviously if you're doing something that's aggravating things, stop doing it because your body's trying to tell you something. Um, and yeah, just, you know, general, general, um, I suppose, uh, common sense, you know, trying not to open, you know, positions that repeated, the positions where you are repetitively causing strain to it, you know. Um, interestingly, I remember seeing a cardiologist um, who was having trouble with his wrist because uh, he was using this instrument constantly every day or most days of the week which was putting a lot of strain on his wrist so the only way forward for him was to use a splint and try and reduce that activity or modify that activity so if you are facing difficulties with your wrist and you're getting a lot of pain with it it might be that you may need to change that activity or alter it or use the splint um, or even have some painkillers and you know non-steroidal anti-inflammatories to help with the pain if if there is some you know discomfort. But the best way to treat these kind of things is to reduce the activity that's causing this aggravation, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I use um, I use a watch on my wrist to to, to give it support. Do, you know, does that count? Watches. This is something that has crossed my mind. Uh, watches and wrist supports and designing a watch that could, um, you know, support your wrist at the same time as, you know, providing some stability, you know, providing a place where you can leave your watch. But I, I have yet to come up with something like this. Uh, I'm sure there's something in the market. Well, you know, it's a, you know, it's an interesting project because, because you're in the market yourself and, you know, that's, that's one of the major reasons why I contacted you because I've, uh, you know, I love watches and I've always been fascinated by those ticking things. Um, you know, you, you, you must be in the fetus when you, when you got interested in watches. 
Um, yeah, I think I was definitely interested in watches much earlier in my life than I was interested in hands, to be honest. Um, as, a, as a child, I loved watches. Um, and obviously that came from my family background in jewelry and watches um, and accessories of that kind, really. Um, my first uh, high-value purchase was a watch, um, which I bought when I was probably 13, 14 for all of my pocket money. I bought a Seiko, uh, a Seiko watch uh, with all of my pocket money, uh, partially financed, of course, by my mom. Um, but yes, I used every penny that I had. Um, well, at that point, it was rupees, not pennies. <laughs> every rupee that I had, I spent it on a watch. Um, and I actually, I still have the watch to this day. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right. Um, watches is, you know, was something I was interested in even before hands. Well, what kind of watch was it? It was, it was a Seiko. What what color was it? Do you, do you remember the make or? It was, yeah, it was a you know it's a standard Seiko quartz chronograph. Um, I don't know why I needed a chronograph, but it just looked nice. So I went and bought the chronograph. Um, yeah, and I think I think it's given up the ghost now, but it it lasted me a good ten years, good 10, 15 years, and it still looks the part, you know. Um, your favorite yeah. colors? Oh, colors-wise, well, that was a silver watch, and the mm -hmm. dial was also silver. It had some really nice um, little red highlights with some um, orange uh, um, hands. So they all made for a very nice aesthetic, actually. Um, and that's what actually resulted in me buying it. Obviously, I had to think about the um, budget as well, and it had to be within budget. But that was the watch at that point. Getting, but in terms of color, and as you know, we've got the uh, Clark and Well um, uh, collection, the Horchester Clark and Well. Uh, automatics and the quartz chronographs. Um, the Oxford blue is my favorite color out of all of them, but obviously I love all of them because they're my babies, you know. Yeah, yeah. So so um, uh, the ocean is is your favorite baby. Yes, the 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 Clarkenwell um, Oxford blue. Oh Oxford blue, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's your favorite one. And how many other colours do you have? So it's uh, four other, so basically five colors in total. So there's the Oxford blue, uh, the Tudor red, Dover white, um, Canop black, and the Cumbrian green. Um, so they're all British themed, obviously from you know either the history or British landscapes, essentially. And and, and um, so you haven't thought of you know, going back into your old watch and sort of uh, servicing it or see, seeing what's wrong with it? and Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I've, I've serviced and looked through a few watches, but I never actually looked through this one. I probably should. That's a good thought. Um, 
I, I, I need to find some time to do that. Yeah. I mean, not that you have any time anyway, you know, given that you're, you know, uh, fasting <laughs> and sort of hand surgeon and, you know, all these other things uh, that you have to do. But, you know, I mean, I've got my um, remote control car behind me, which has stopped working and I should really get back to it and, you know, tinker around inside and see why it stopped working. Um, I guess it brings back, you know, some uh, uncomfortable memories. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think I think I should, um, especially the, the the problem with that watch would be that in my head I've already written it off in the sense that yeah. it's probably um, given up the ghost because quartz, um, well, you can't call call quartz a movement per se, but quartz watches and batteries. If the battery is leaked, which is what I am assuming it has uh, done. Um, salvaging it can be quite difficult, but then you could just take out the whole quartz movement and replace it with a new quartz. So, yeah, you know, yeah. that is a possibility. So, you've got families always been involved in essentially jewelry and 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 also watches. Um, you know, why did you go into medicine? You know, what was what was the uh, what was the conflict there? Okay, so. Yes, so we've had um, gem trading and watches, I would say, for around four to five generations in the family. So it's something that we've been doing, you know, a very, very long time. Uh, my dad was a specialist in Sri Lankan glucifiers. Um, so that's, that was his specialism and interest. Um, and actually, a fun fact, uh, you know, Kate Middleton's Glucifier, uh, the, the engagement ring that she's right. got. Right, right, yeah. That Glucifier is actually a Sri Lankan Glucifier, it's a corn club Glucifier. Oh, wow. And that was pro- and that was supplied by my dad, actually. Wow. Uh, so that's my claim to fame there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, we've had this for generations, but I think... The reason why I went down the medical route uh, was probably, I would say, threefold. Okay, I would say that firstly, um, I was fortunate enough and I was hardworking enough to be able to get the grades. Okay, so I, so I got the grades. So that's one thing. based on um, a natural resource that was going to run out at some point. So his feeling was, look, don't do the business because it's a natural resource, it's going to run out and we're not going to have a business at the end of it. Which is, in a way, probably not a rational fear because it's still going and they've been doing it for five generations. But I bought into that uh, because that's what I was told. Um, And thirdly, I'll be honest and say that um, I was always interested in physics and the way things move and mechanics. And probably this is why I have an interest in watches. Um, but I just couldn't figure out as a 17, 18 year old what I could do with physics. Um, I couldn't see a exit strategy 
having done a physics degree. So I chose medicine as probably, you know, because it was a safer career choice in a way. But come to think of it now, 18 years down the line, I'm quite happy with where I am. I love hands. Um, you know, I love operating. It's, it's, it's really fun. Um, yes, there are gripes that you have with the NHS and the way it works and um, difficulties with the system, but, you know, it's a whole lot better than a lot of the other systems around the world and we get to operate on almost everyone without having to turn them away. And that's, you know, that's a fantastic, um, a fantastic privilege. Yeah, I mean, you know, we all have dodgy family members, but, you know, there are some families that are much worse than ours. So, you know, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not going to complain that much. I mean, it's bad, but it's not that bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, given that you sort of, um, you know, going through medicine and then why did you go back to sort of watchmaking? Because it's you, you, it feels like you're coming back you know, to sort of full circle. Yeah, so so what happened? Um, so there are a number of things actually again. So around 2014, December, my father suddenly passed away. Uh, and that got me thinking about life. Obviously, you become a bit more philosophical and uh, introspective when you have some form of, um, you know, I'll say a difficult moment or, you know, a, a, uh, you know that kind of grief, a, uh, an event that causes some grief. So you start, being, you know, going to this introspective mode and start thinking about, oh, I've actually only got another 30 years on this earth or another 35 years. Um, do I want to only experience what it's like to work in the NHS? Or do I want to experience other things? Um, so that's one part of it. Then the second part, of course, was, look, my dad and his family have done all of this for this long. I need to do something to salvage this great history that my family has within this kind of trade and within uh, jewelry and so on. So, you know, you have that thought process in the back of your mind. And the other thing was, also, I was quite stressed and work was quite stressful. Um, and I thought there had to be a way to relax. And I thought designing watches was, a, you know, was, was something that I always wanted to do. Why not try it out? So all of these things culminated in me starting to design watches. And then eventually um, I met a friend of mine who kind of suggested, why don't we make watches? Why don't we try and you know develop this as a business? Probably, me being who I am and being quite, um, you know, being quite uh, the person to go and build something from scratch. I felt, look, if we're gonna do this thing with watches, I'm not, I'm not just gonna, you know. Put my logo on some on some other person's watch and say, "Oh, this is my watch." I'm going to do it, you know, from scratch and from right from the beginning. Um, and that's why I went straight down to designing the watches myself. You know, selecting the parts, 
selecting the manufacturer, um, designing the packaging myself, designing the logo myself, uh, and actually building everything from top to bottom um, and not just taking the easy route out, which would have been just to go to a manufacturer and go, look, can you put my logo on your watch and we can sell it off as my own? Uh, and it's, it's that, that's something that never sat comfortably with me, will never sit comfortably with me. And so I, so I went ahead and designed my own, built my own and created it, you know, um, with my kind of aesthetic and my thoughts about design. And, you know, how would you describe your, your design? I mean, you know, you, you mentioned sort of the whole British um, flavor to things. How else, how else would you do that? Now that you mentioned that, the other thing that really inspired me, actually, just before I answer your question, was the British history of watchmaking. Mm. Uh, that was actually a fourth factor, uh, because I love history. Um, I've always been, you know, somebody who's into history. I mean, I, would, I, I you know, <laughs> I, I won the history prize a few times in school. So history was, again, another, another very interesting subject for me. But when I started reading about the British history of watchmaking, I actually started to learn that watchmaking was actually a pioneering British activity in a way. Um, so a lot of the advancements in mechanical watchmaking and clockmaking came from British, uh, British craftspeople. So, you know, the, the British were ahead in terms of watchmaking far ahead of the Swiss, okay, between the 16th to the 19th centuries. So for two, two to 300 years, the British were at the pinnacle of watchmaking and clockmaking. Unfortunately, due to taxes and the world wars, the uh, British industry uh, was decimated as a result. And a lot of the watchmakers couldn't afford to carry on. They had to sell their equipment and sell their tools and so on. And a lot of the trade then ended up going to Switzerland. And funny enough, um, uh, Rolex was incorporated in London, okay, um, by a British and a Swiss individual. So Hans Wilsdorf, and forgive me, but I can't remember the British uh, individual's name, but they incorporated it in, in, in the UK. And then eventually they moved it to Switzerland. Oh, that's so, okay because it's you know woke, woke culture now prevails so we're not supposed to remember any of the british history of the past and so on the good stuff <laughs> yeah. that's that was that was a key you know uh, inspiration for me um sorry what was your question again i answered a completely different question well i can't remember but i mean it was um i mean what's your kind of style and your sort of uh flavor of of um yeah. Of, inspiration uh, behind the design, yeah. yes. I think that's what we were talking about. So the inspiration behind the design really um, came from... So obviously I knew that the brand, or if I was ever going to create a brand, it needed to be a British... to, to have a heavy British influence because obviously I was inspired by this history of British watchmaking. And that's why... Clarkenwell, because Clarkenwell was a, um, but in terms of the design itself, a lot of the design cues were taken from British automobiles, because that was the one aspect that I could think of as being still 
very British and very recognizably British. So brands like Rolls-Royce, Bentley, um, McLaren, uh, and so on, which are, you know, luxury type, obviously not uh, McLaren, but Bentleys and Rolls-Royces and Jaguars and so on. They're very muscular, very British, very, uh, have a very uniquely British uh, design philosophy. I use them as the philosophy behind Horchester watches. And you can see that because the watches are quite chunky. Um, they've got the muscular build of a British luxury car. Um, the components you know, are you know, 316L stainless steel, sapphire glass crystal, um, you know, tapestry pattern dial, genuine leather. So I'm trying to obviously you know, um, use components in a similar way. Um, and then, for example, the red uh, second hand on the watch. So if you look at the Rochester watches, they've all got a red second hand. And this is the kind of um, uh, make it similar to the red RPM countermeter that you would find in you know, sporty versions of British luxury cars. You know? so, so there's a lot of kind of thought processes that went into designing the watch and trying to translate um, the design from a British car to a watch. And obviously, you know, you as somebody who's observing it could inform me better whether it's done the job or not. But I hope that whatever I've done, you know, translates at least reasonably well, if not well. You know? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it has a very traditional um, sense to it, you know. Mm. Um, how, how, how does the sort of British tradition sit, sit with your Sri Lankan heritage and background? Yeah, well, I mean, look, I, I, you know, I feel that um, it, it sits quite, it sits quite comfortably. I would say, I mean, yeah. I feel that um, yes, you know, there were things that um, you know, colonization, and you know, I don't want to shy away from on any of these things, um, but I do feel that there were aspects to colonization that were probably beneficial to certain other societies and probably um, are probably because of the fact, because I'm Sri Lankan, um, I can say it, whereas, you know, if you're a Brit complete, well, I'm Sri Lankan and I am British in a way, I can say it and say, look, I think there were certain benefits, okay? Obviously there were uh, issues that needed to be dealt with as well, okay, expropriating a nation's wealth and so on. Um, but there are certain things that um, were left behind uh, that we could have benefited from. And to be honest, look at Sri Lanka now, <laughs> it would have been, you know, far better if the British were there. And this is probably very controversial for me to say, yeah. but, you know, I'm sure that implementing some of the systems that are in this country right now in Sri Lanka would have been beneficial for the country. And we've really, you know, with our independence, you know, we've not really, well, you can't blame the whole population for that. You have to blame the politicians, but, the you know, politicians are put in place by various populations, right, through the democratic process. And we haven't made very intelligent democratic decisions as a country, as a nation. So I do feel that, you know, 
I feel it sits quite comfortably, the whole Yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree with you. I mean, it, you know, it's it's not an easy discussion. I mean, my my ancestors used to kill the British uh, just after the First World War. So, you know, um, you know, I'm a staunch. Well, my my ancestors were staunch anti-British, and and here I am in in the UK, sounding like a Brit, um, eating fish and chips, and you know, I used to watch uh, EastEnders. Um, <laughs> But look, I mean, you know, before the Brits came in, we didn't know what natural resources were. And, you know, before the Brits came in, we didn't have any proper structural infrastructure. And um, I think in any society, uh, particularly the lower ends of, of the social class, uh, they benefit more from very good infrastructure. You know, the better your, your infrastructure as a nation um the the lower rungs in society benefit the most from improved infrastructure um so and i think that's undeniable and you know um the best infrastructure you know for iraq anyway was sort of 50s and 60s and 70s you know where there was a very close relationship with um with with britain um what can i say <laughs> you know Results yeah. are results. Yeah, I suppose, you know, like, yeah, yeah, as you say, you know, this is the discussion that will always go on and, you know, you can always um, discuss the, the benefits and the disbenefits and the merits and the, you know, the various atrocities and so on. And it's just, I, I feel that nations act in self-interest. Mm. Uh, and if any other population was in... Uh, possession of such power and might, uh, they would have most likely done the same. It's unlikely that, um, you know, human beings being human beings, that, you know, that another nation might have acted. Well, there's a possibility that, you know, they would have acted differently. But I feel that when when you have power and the amount of um, the, the, the you know, capacity to do, you know, the uh, strength that the British Empire had. I mean, if, if that was given to someone else, would they have acted more responsibly? Who knows? You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, they had a, a system that worked. Um, and at the time, it was very um, effective. Um, you know, looking back at, you know, the world's a different place now. And, you know, that's not how we operate anymore. Um, and, 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 and I think it doesn't make sense to kind of, uh, treat like for like when when the world back then was totally different yes and then, uh, you know and then we judge them with our own current standards i mean it's a bit like you know when i look at um ophthalmic surgery and ophthalmic surgery 50 years ago it's unfair to judge the surgery that we do today to the surgery that we did 50 years ago absolutely and, and i think that's dis disingenuous of us to say oh look you know look at them and look how archaic they are and look how you know, all the other derogatory de terms that, you know, one can use, um, yeah. you know, because we, we have moved on. I mean, I have personally moved on since, since five years ago, you know, the stuff that I did five years ago, I cringe, you know, uh, to the stuff that I did five years ago. And, you know, I think it's reasonable to take that analogy to, to, to how, uh, you know, the big nations used to act a hundred and 200 yeah. years ago. I totally agree.
um, yeah, it's not it's not fair to judge, um, you know, things that I mean. Well, so one of the things that people would do sometimes is they would judge people from a thousand years ago or eight hundred years ago on the same principles that we hold today, and I think that's really quite ridiculous because the world is a completely different place. And, you know, I mean, you know, to be honest with you, it, it's, it sort of shows you how, I mean, it shows you how kind of maybe small minded they are to do that judgment or maybe how simplistic, you know, yeah. their way of thinking is maybe, um, you know, for them to do that comparison. Yeah, agreed. So, um, you know, we're, we're, we're coming towards the end of the podcast and, you know, uh, I'm a fan of watches and you're a fan of watches. So, mm-hmm. you know, what are your kind of, you know, top three watches that you always, you know, they, they always tick the box. They always do the right thing. Well, I'd, I'd have to say. Apart from your company, of course, apart from your watches, of course. I'm, I'm disappointed that you put that proviso on my list. But anyway, <laughs> I would I would say that for me um, there are three well I suppose there are three brands that stand out for me um, and the three brands for me are obviously a Seiko okay uh, Seikos are I think they're a fantastic um, brand um, it was my first watch. It lasted for longer than I expected. Um, they are reasonable. Well, they're priced very well for what you're getting. Um, and they have a newer, um, more, more kind of upmarket range called Seiko Grand, which uh, are competitors to Rolex and all the other big brands. So I think they're a very good brand. I've met a lot of the Seiko mechanics and engineers when I traveled to various countries to look at movements. Um, but yeah, and I can, I can guarantee that, you know, their movements are very good and I've seen them and uh, very durable. And I would, I would definitely always have a Seiko in my collection and I have got a couple in my collection right now. Um, second brand, I would say, um, that I would go for is of course this is you know not a question or you know it's, it's going to be quite cliche obviously it's Rolex okay um, they they've obviously created a name they have continuously innovated over the years um, I don't know if they're innovating whether you could call what they're doing innovation right now Okay, because um, a lot of the different um, watches are, you know, essentially rehashes of collections they've always had. But back in the day, in the 1950s, 60s, you know, uh, Rolex were, you know, probably, well, they still are the most innovative or one of the most innovative watchmaking companies around, you know, ever. Okay, they're a Goliath and, yeah, you know, the fact that their watches 
actually increasing price of the manufacturer evidence to this fact. Um, and then, of course, the third brand, that's a difficult one, but I would say the third brand that I'm absolutely in love with and I would say are worth investing in and uh, make really good watches, probably slightly blown out of proportion, but nonetheless, is Audemars Piquet. Um, love that, love the Royal Oak. Um, just uh, no watch compares to that. And if I could, okay, have a fourth one, I would say Patek Philippe, the Nautilus, that would be another fantastic um, brand. And another watch that, you know, fantastic for investment, fantastic make, fantastic brand. Um, yeah. But this is me talking about the Rolex, but the other two. Yeah, I mean, Rolex just have an amazing um, uh, brand and sort of marketing strategy. Uh, you know, they, you know, they seem to be able to sort of pull it out on a on a regular basis. And um, yeah, I mean, um, so you're not a fan of Richard Mille then, because you know, there's something about those watches that's uh, well, strange. Um, yeah, they're not like the good watches. I I just can't. He created a fantastic uh yeah fantastic piece that you know i don't know how he managed to do it in the time span he's done it in 10 15 years obviously you know they're stalwarts of the watch industry and he broke off and went ahead and you know designed and made his own brand um i can't see why i would pay close to 150,000 200,000 pound for richard mill Yes, they're beautiful watches. They're you know, you know, fantastic skeleton watches. Um, but um, yeah, it's, you know, I, I would happily wear one. <laughs> um, but no, I wouldn't put them in my top top three or top four. Um, but no, I am extremely, extremely impressed and inspired by Richard Mill. Um, I think, I think, um, yeah, he's, they've done a fantastic job. You think uh, um, you think uh, you'll be thinking about sort of a, a skeleton watch for your brand? Is is that something on the? Yes. The, so at the moment, I want to try and build the brand a bit more. Yeah. I need to try and develop the story a bit more, um, and I need to I need to try and yeah, re- really try and get the brand uh, in a in a position in terms of visuals and story as best as I can. Uh, and to that front, actually, um, I'll be uh, taking part in a watch exhibition in June, hopefully. So I'll send you the details. And uh, if you want to come along, please do come and visit. It's yeah, in London. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Send, send us the details and, you know, we can put it on the, um, uh, on, on, on the show notes so people can uh, come along as well and meet you and um, yeah, because I'll be there. I'll be there, and you can talk to me, and you know we can talk about yeah. watches all day. You know? Great, yeah. great, wonderful. How 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 can people get hold of you? I mean, obviously we'll leave the link um, in the show notes. What's the best way of people getting hold of you? So email me on founder at holchester.com. I'm also on LinkedIn, uh, Shahab Jabir. 
Um, and then if you can, you, if you, you can visit our website as well, www.harchester.com. Got all our watches on there. Um, and direct email to me, if you message, it'll come to me. So yeah, all of those different ways. Lovely. Thank you, Shab. It's been great. Thank you so much. The pleasure has been all of mine, actually.